uh, if you weren't here, we began a new sermon series uh, that we're going to cover over the course of this school year called Jesus in Genesis. And I kind of laid some of the foundational uh, teachings that we're going to kind of continue to come back to uh, during that time. And one of the first and fundamental ones was that uh, the Bible is this continuous story of man's sin and God's redemption. And it's God's story, not ours. And we spelled out this idea of this repeated message of man's sin and God's redemption, how it was, it was spelled out from the very first chapters of the Old Testament all the way through to the very last chapters of the New Testament in Revelation. And we also established that Jesus has been present through it all. He wasn't uh, just this baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He has always been, and he will always be. He is God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him and for him. And as we took a look at the first words of the Bible last week, Genesis chapter 1, God's plan to redeem man through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ became even more real. real. We talked about, uh, you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. We talked about the first Hebrew word of the Bible, Bereshit, which is the, what we translate in the beginning. That in the Hebrew language, there are pictures that go with each letter. And those pictures, when you translate them, tell a story themselves. And when you translate the first word of the Bible, Bereshit, in Hebrew, this is what it translates to. The Son of God will be destroyed by his own hand on a cross. That's all that encompasses that first word of Scripture. So before mankind had even committed its first sin, God already had a plan to take care of it through the death of his Son on the cross. It was already foretold. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles today to Genesis chapter 2. So we're going to pick up the story with Adam, the first human created in the image of God and placed in the Garden of Eden. At that time, everything was perfect. God had set up paradise. There was perfect communion between God and man. There was no sickness, no death. There was plenty of food, water, whatever it is that he needed. Probably, you know, satellite TV to catch a game time to time. That's a joke. It's okay. Yeah. Not being really serious, but kind of, sort of, maybe. And there also was the absence of things. There was an absence of guilt and shame and fear and anger and any kind of negative emotion that you can think of. God had just one condition. Mankind had to be obedient to him and had to submit to his authority. Now, there's a lot of people that that can be kind of like a, a thorn in their side. Like, why did God have to demand that? Let me ask you guys that question. Why do you think God established it that we had to obey him. We had to submit to his authority. Yes, that was a quick hand. 
Kirsten. Okay, so he was saying that obedience to him was always better than obedience to ourselves. Okay, Brian? Okay, because he's know, he knows what's best for us better than we do. All right. It'd be kind of like your, your children saying to you, you know, as a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, hey, I got this, right? Mom and dad, I, I, know, what, I know what's up. I know how to handle life. I can figure this out. I've been around a while, right? Yeah. Okay, she said we can't have a, a relationship based on love if there are no choices, because in the end we had the choice to either obey him or not to obey him, right? And I th- yes. If we're obeying God, then we're not obeying Satan. Okay, yeah, there's an enemy, so we're obeying either God or Satan. So if we're not obeying one, we're obeying the other. So he's saying, hey, better to obey me. I'm the good guy here, right? I think also it was just kind of there to kind of remind us that we're not God. He is, right? So great answers. Let's look then at at chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So you're free to eat from all of these trees, just not this one right here. That sounds pretty clear, right? Well, now we're going to come to what is probably the most important chapter written in any book in the history of mankind, Genesis chapter 3, where we screw it all up, okay? And I love the Bible because it's timeless. Because it it describes the human condition, which never changes. In the book of Genesis, you can find every sin imaginable that mankind could do. In the thousands of years since Genesis 3, or since the book of Genesis happened, we have not come up with a new way to sin. It's all there. Read this story. We're going to cover a lot of it this year. It, it's, it's crazy. And the truth is that at every, um, all of our stories contain the same elements that we're going to find in Genesis chapter 3. The truth is that Adam and Eve are us. They're us. And I had this idea once that, um, that we should make Bibles where on the left side would be the text and then on the right side would be a mirror, every single page. And when we started to kind of read about these horrible people in Scripture that just were so stupid and couldn't figure it out, all we would have to do is just go like this and be like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm stupid, right? And be reminded that, that we're part of the problem. Now, that, that Bible might be a little clunky a little expensive, a little impractical, but I think it would be really good, um, at least for you guys, not for me. But, um. So I want to go ahead and read chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from 
eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I'm sorry, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her low-life husband who was with her, and he ate it. <clears throat> so Satan comes in the form of this serpent. At this point, he's already been cast down. From heaven as a fallen angel, an angel who was unwilling to submit to God's authority. And so God had to to cast him down to the earth. And here he comes as a great deceiver. And he's looking to plant seeds of doubt about the goodness of God into the minds of Adam and Eve. Basically, he's looking for a way to get back at God. And so he sets his sights on the object of of God's greatest affection, you and I. As he did in the wilderness with Jesus thousands of years later, Satan begins by questioning God's intentions. Did God really say that you would die? Surely not. But you notice he offers no real proof to the contrary. He doesn't say, oh, you know what, it'll be fine, trust me. He just wants to get us doubting. And one of Eve's first mistakes is in engaging Satan in conversation. My advice to you when he's tempting you and he's whispering in your ear is just to rebuke him right away. Uh, Use some scripture if you know some, but just say, I'm not listening. Because he's pretty crafty, he's pretty smart, and you will not outwit him. So just don't even start the conversation. But Satan really attacks Adam and Eve on two main points the first thing he does is he questions the power of God. Can he really kill you? You will not certainly die. And this is always kind of the first step, and I believe it's, it's really one of the biggest struggles that we experience in our culture today is, is God serious about sin, and does he have the power to do something about our disobedience? And it's because of this doubt about God's power, this unbelief, that people continue to sin in our world so flippantly. Like we made the rules, and we have no authority to obey or worry about. And I believe it's why on several occasions in Scripture we'll find this statement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Acknowledging that there is a higher power than us who has the power to punish or reward is the first step in learning how to navigate a life that is pleasing to God. Moses got a glimpse of God's power in Exodus 3. I'll just read the quick story there. You guys are pretty familiar with the story of the burning bush, right? 
Now Moses, it says, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So Moses starts to move in to get a little bit closer look at God. And God says, hey, hold up there, pal. Stand back. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. In other words, you don't really have any idea who you're dealing with here, do you? In his book, uh, The Gospel in Genesis, the author author, uh, writes this. He says, He is the true God, the creator of the ends of the earth, everlastingly almighty in his eternity and in his glory, who never knows what it is to be weary or to be tired, who never faints. And yet think of the way in which all of us have spoken about him and have argued about him and have expressed our opinions about him. There is no fear of God before our eyes. That is the trouble. We do not know what we are speaking about. We do not understand God. Have you ever felt like that? That you have no idea of the awesome power of God that you're dealing with and what it means to have a healthy reverence for his power? Because what happens is is that lack of a healthy fear of the Lord gives us this cavalier spirit about our sin that is dangerous indeed. So he begins by questioning the power of God. Does he even really have the ability to kill you or to punish you for your sin? The second thing that Satan questions is the goodness of God. Look at verse 5 again. He says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God, Satan says, he's holding out on you. This whole thing, it just feels too cramped and narrow, you know? Spread your wings a little bit here. He just doesn't want you to experience the good stuff. Premarital sex, power, fame, material things, right? All the trappings the world has to offer. What's so wrong with chasing after the good life? But it's a slippery slope, isn't it? It starts with a question about the power of God. Hey, don't be controlled by fear. You'll be all right. And then it morphs into questioning the goodness of God. Look at how he's holding out on you. Look around. Don't people seem happy when they're kind of calling their own shots? You don't see them dying the moment they sin, do you? 
Most of the people in this world look a lot happier than some of the miserable sourpuss Christians I've seen. And so the world creates its own God. A God that's just okay with our choices. Love wins, right? We create a God who isn't just who isn't just or holy or righteous. A God who demands very little but forgives very much. A God who we kind of work into our schedule when we're available. Look at what they had in paradise. Was that not enough? Look at us, right? The right side of the Bible with the mirror. God creates each one of us, knits us together, gives us this unbelievable beating heart, gives us air and lungs to breathe, creates each one of us uniquely with special gifts and and talents, creates us with this desire and this capacity to love and be loved. In addition to that, he gives us a sun, the rain, beauty, relationships and he could take it all away any moment do you understand that that this is all a gift it's all a gift and what do we say in return hey thanks God I appreciate all those things you've done for me but I don't really owe you anything That's the tenor of most of the world. We are a really ungrateful people, aren't we? Let's look at verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It says they realized they were naked. Something was missing. That original glory that they were created in, all of a sudden, they had a sense it's gone. We all sense that we're missing something. Every one of us is longing for our original glory. We were meant for something bigger and higher than what we've settled for. And we're all on this journey of trying to kind of recapture something that we know we once possessed. So as a result, we're restless. And we're searching. And you see it in society. We're searching for love and joy and peace and hope and purpose and meaning, but we can't find it. And we demand that the things of this world satisfy us. We demand that the people of this world validate us. But they can't do it. Careers, marriage, children, friendships, hobbies, degrees, art, beauty, music, vacations, material things, it's never enough. And we're constantly searching for just the right fig leaf 
to cover up our loneliness, our emptiness, and our shame. It's why Augustine, a long time ago, said, Our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. And then Jesus bursts on the scene in his ministry, and he declares his mission, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. What it is that you've been looking for, what it is that you're seeking, I've got it. I'm the answer. But we doubt his goodness and his intentions towards us. And after a while, stolen fruit begins to give us spiritual indigestion. Something's not right. We've all been there at some point in our lives where we realize something's missing. Our conscience is guilty. We try to keep it quiet by distraction and escape and medication and therapists. We hide. Look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. They hide from God. And that perfect relationship has been fractured. They know they've been disobedient. But here's the thing. God already knew this was going to happen. Right? Bear a sheet. And so he pursues them. Man hides. God pursues. And he says, where are you? And I don't imagine him saying it in that tone where it's like, where are you? Wait till I get my hands on you, you crummy little person. I'm going to strangle you to death, right? (laughs) I imagine him walking through the garden saying, hey, guys, where are you? Come out. Let's talk about this. Adam and Eve, your story's not over. Your story isn't over. But the conversation has certainly turned here, hasn't it? Eve had a lot of things to say about God just a few minutes before. And we all have lots of opinions about what we think life is all about. Who we think God is and what he's all about. Humanity likes to put God under interrogation But really, we're the ones on trial. And at some point in our life, if we're listening, God begins to address us. Hey, where are you? Where are you literally? Where are you hiding? (laughs) Where are you mentally? Where are you spiritually in your heart? Jesus has a way of closing in. Just like that song we just sang. It's just you and me right now. There's billions of people in this world, but right now it's just you and me. Where are you? 
In John chapter 4, many of you guys are familiar with this story where Jesus goes into this village and he sits down by a well at noon and this woman comes out to draw water. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. And oh, she's just really happy to talk about all kinds of stuff about God. She's got a lot of opinions about how God works, how people worship, all this stuff. And then in the midst of the conversation, Jesus looks at her and says, hey, bring your husband over here. I'd like to meet him. Because he knows she's been married and divorced several times. The man she's living with currently is not her husband. Basically, he says to this woman, quit hiding behind polite conversation and come out in the open. Jesus always makes it personal. We're willing to entertain a thousand conversations about a lot of stuff until the focus is turned towards us and our thoughts, actions, words, character, or lack thereof. I remember that time in my life when I finally heard God saying, Hey, Bob, where are you? And he used uh, a, a coach in my life. He used some young life leaders to kind of say that to me. And I remember, you know, kind of in my heart saying to God, Hey, you know what? I'm hiding trying to fill my life with sports and achievement, friendships and girls and really long hair back then that I checked constantly. Now I'm just like, I don't want to check. I basically also just told him, you know what? Right now I'm making up the rules myself where I'm at the center of the universe and I don't really check in with anyone. But I also knew, you know what, God, that's not working very well for me right now. Has he met you there? Do you hear his voice calling you? Hey, come out of hiding. Where are you? And guys, we hide because we don't understand God and his intentions. We don't understand how great his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his love for us are. That he already had a plan to save us before we committed our first sin. Jesus. And God pursued Adam and Eve for two reasons. Just like he pursues us. The first was to say, hey, you know what? Guys, unfortunately, the reality is, is that there are consequences for your disobedience. There's just no two ways around that. Our sin affects people. It affects us. It affects the world and other people in our relationships. And there's going to be some, some penalties for that. And everything, as you begin to read the story, and we'll read it here in a minute, everything starts to really unravel in Genesis chapter 3 in kind of an alarming fashion because of sin. And it's the same way in our lives. There's a price to pay for ignoring God 
in his created order. But more importantly, he pursued them because despite it all, despite our sin and rebellion, despite our lack of respect and submission, he offers us a way through to forgiveness and to joy and to life, to love, to purpose and meaning, all the things that we sense are missing. But he says this, you got to come humbly. You got to come out of hiding. You got to be willing to be exposed a little bit. Step out of hiding and kind of let God look at all those fig leaves that you've covered yourself with. And the ways that you've tried to kind of fill up your life with meaning by chasing other idols, other gods besides him. It's got to get personal. And that's where a lot of people kind of get tripped up. I want to read one more quote here real quick to you. It says this. It says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in other words, is not just some pleasant message that says, go and do anything you like. God loves you. It will all be right in the end. Receive all these blessings and there's no more to say. God does not stop at that. You that love the Lord, says the psalmist, hate evil. If you want to love God, the gospel tells us, you cannot love money at the same time. If you want to walk along the narrow way, you cannot continue in the broad way. If you want your house to be on a rock, it cannot be on the sand. Always coupled with the blessings, there is a demand. The gospel is not just a statement that God is benevolent and loving and that it does not matter what we do, that everything will be all right at the end because God is love. And because it is not that, men and women still object and still go on repeating exactly what was done in the garden at the beginning by Adam and Eve. Well, let's wrap up with verses 11 through 15 here in chapter 3. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And there in verse 15... We have what many people refer to as the first gospel message, a prophecy about Jesus. Yes, Satan will strike you. You will be bloodied and bruised and beaten on the cross. But in the end, you will crush his head. You will be victorious in death and resurrection. I want you to turn your Bibles over to Colossians chapter 2. It's page 1076 in the Pew Bibles. Colossians chapter 2, page 1076. It 
Verse 13 says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Remember in Ephesians, this past spring, when we talked about spiritual warfare and being in the battle, and we said that our our battle was not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the authorities of this dark world? That was Satan, that was uh, Jesus' battle as well. His battle to disarm Satan so that we could be set free. It was a story that began in a garden at a tree. A story that was accomplished in Jerusalem as Christ was nailed to a tree. And it's a victory that we walk on in in triumph free to come out of hiding, free to be embraced by a God that says to each one of us, where are you? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, one of the things that's interesting as we wrap up here today um, is I'm not real fond always of just giving you like three easy things to go do with this message. This message doesn't really lend itself to that anyways. Life's a lot more tricky than that, I think. But what I love is, is that God, because he knows each one of you, there's, there's certain things that have stuck with you today that you're going to walk away with that maybe nobody else in here is. I think it's even funny sometimes when I ask people, hey, what do you think about the message? And they, they tell me something that they learned that I didn't even say, like wasn't a part of my message at all. And I'm like, oh, okay. God must have really wanted to talk with you about that today because <laughs> you didn't hear it from me, but that's interesting. Um, but what I'd like to do, if you're willing, is for you to just kind of share with us, what are you going to walk away with from this message? How did God get your attention today? What's stuck? What's making you think? And we'll just be encouraged by how God spoke in a lot of different ways to a few different people. Anybody willing to share? Yes, Nick. I have you may have two. Yes. When you said how we have engaged Satan in conversation and outreach, that's where our first mistake. Yeah. You said when Eve engaged Satan in conversation uh, and how we shouldn't do that. Yes. And then the Augustine quote that our heart is restless until it rests in you. Yeah. The quote about our heart is restless until it rests in you. Good. Who else? Yeah, Phil. Yeah. And so just that whole like, am I listening well enough for God to say, hey, where are you? Yeah. Good. He just says he spends a lot of time hiding. And guys, every day God is saying, where are you? I mean, he loves you. 
right? If your child went missing and was hiding, it wouldn't just be like once a month. You'd be like, I wonder where my kid is. It'd be like all the time. Where are you, right? Send people out in the neighborhood. Where are you, right? But we don't hear it because we're distracted. We're busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, inside of me was that I'm in control of something, and it wasn't until total acceptance and surrender, and giving my will to God's will, that I could even discern the different voices in my head mm-hmm. of the voice of God and the voice of Satan mm-hmm. to be able to knock one out and follow the right path. Yeah, yeah. He said it's just it's really confusing. When you're not even sure which voice is which, when you don't even know God and his word well enough to be able to differentiate the truth from a lie. Yeah, yeah. Hey, somebody under 30, right? This is exciting. All right, thanks for stepping up. Yes. Yeah. I guess I can justify my wrongdoing. Yeah, that we create a God that, that's, that's pretty okay with what we're doing, right? So we can just feel justified in continuing to do that. Anybody else? Yeah. I think having the mirror on the right side of the page is a great mm. Yes. Because it is easy to look at especially people in the Old Testament and go, what were they thinking? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. She said mirror bookmarks. Hmm. <laughs> Pretty soon Bob's going to have his own private jet <laughs> when the mirror bookmarks takes off. <laughs> I'll split it 50 50 with you, Claire. Yeah. Hey, we're going to have, uh, we're gonna have uh, communion now, and uh, I'm going to give you some time just in quietness, just to connect with God and, and maybe meditate a little bit more on what he might have said to you today. Um, after a while, our ushers will come uh, and dismiss you, and you can come up and tear off the bread and dip it in the cup uh, and take and eat. And we also have uh, a gluten-free crackers and drink there for you that need that as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, you know us so well. We're not fooling you with all of our flowery conversation about what we think about you or about life. Lord, I know in me I need much more of a healthy reverence for you, much more of a a fear for your authority so that I take my sins seriously. God, I do pray that all of us would come out of hiding. All of us, every one of us, we're hiding at some level. We all have these dark shadows and these corners, these closets, where we really don't want your light to shine on us. We really don't want to come clean. 
But Lord, you, you always make it personal. And you already know those things, so we're not hiding anything from you anyways. <laughs> and when we keep things in hiding, that's where the enemy has the power. It's only when things are brought in the light that things can be healed and there can be freedom. So I pray that for folks today. God, I pray that as we silence our hearts before you, as we get ready to receive your, your bread and, and your blood, God, that we would remember what those mean, the sacrifice that you paid, the love that you had, that before we sinned for the first time, you already had it figured out, how to redeem us, just how grateful we should be for that. Help us to be a grateful people, God.